Hello, everybody. I need to apologize for many reasons, but I think the first ones that I need to apologize for is for not being here before I just arrived. But it was a very, very important uh, meeting that uh, couldn't be postponed. Uh, so sorry about it. Um, I feel very bad about it. I'm, I'm, I'm not that person who comes just to give his paper. Um, okay. Um, I, I ha please go ahead. Is I, I will accept uh, punishment for that. Uh, the thing is, um, I have promised. The second reason I want to apologize is because I, I'm not going to keep my promise. My promise was to talk about infrastructures uh, in uh, Greece and crisis. But in the light of the recent events, the last few days, I put together a new paper on borders and refugees and um, you know, the spaces of crisis uh, and the specialities as space, uh, which were created after Cold War in Europe and how these are related uh, with the phenomena we're watching today unraveling all across the Turkey Balkan corridor. And I would like to tell you that uh, to start my life, uh, my academic life, I was uh, working in the Balkans, in Albania, in post-communism. Greece came later in my life. Uh, so somehow we combine these two interests, uh, um, if borders matter, of course, huh? uh, especially in the Balkans, but just saying that. So we combine these two interests. So two apologies, one for being late, two for not giving the paper I have promised to give you. But I, I, I felt an urgency to put together a new paper, which literally put it together until yesterday, until last night. So, droning migrants. Europe was shocked by the news. A boat full of migrants sank into the Mediterranean Sea, taking with it 57 people to its depths. The episode occurred when the Italian Navy vessel Sibilla, in an effort to protect the common EU borders, crossed with a migrant's boat. Some serious debates took place at the time, raising questions such as whether it was an accident or part of a political effort to stop the flow of migrants. Also, uh, to stop the flow of migrants. Also, many people have been wondering whether the Italian Navy could have rescued the migrants. The year though, it's 1997, and, the, and this, this is the famous Otranto tragedy when a boat full of Albanians who were fleeing the civil war in Albania were trying to cross our common EU borders, and as many claim, the Italian Navy, in an effort to stop this, uh, these flows, in an effort to, to stop these flows, uh, basically caused the boat, the boat to, to sink. I was trying to help, honestly. It's all right, it's all right. Uh, that's, that's not gonna, I think that's not going to work in any way. I generally think, um, uh, yeah, okay, we need a microphone for the camera. All right. um, Sibylla, in a, in a kind of historical irony, since we are sharing this space with the colleagues from Humanities, as far as you remember, we're in ancient Hellenic and Roman world, uh, where, where the uh, the female prophets, prophetesses, right, who were quite often foreseeing the future. Um, uh, so, so, you know, uh, and somehow that functioned as a, 
as a first taste of what we are going to follow and what is going to follow for the rest of the decade, basically. This is what Fortress Europe was, was basically people dying on the bottom of a GNC uh, or on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea for all these years with a peak in 2015-2016. Um, beyond the spatial securitization of the exclusivity of a privileged European space, the post-Cold War period inaugurated a new condition for European spatialities. First, there is the new private property real estate regime. Second, there was a radical transformation and increase of the built environment. And third, there was the securitization of the exclusivity of a privileged European territory. As the European economy slows down and the construction and real estate sectors are deregulated or just sat down basically like it happens in Greece, what we observe coming into the surface is only Europe's most ugly and disturbing phase, spatial condition, which we see it today in the borders. Historically, the 20th century has witnessed two major pan-European construction projects that have been taking place over the entire length and width of the continent, renewing its built environment. The first one is the post-World War II construction project. This post-World War II project was much larger scale in comparison to the post-Cold War and had some very explicitly, it had a very explicit two-fold characteristic. Basically, capitalism was building its own infrastructure, it was building the capitalist Europe, and communism was building the communist Europe. Following both of them, uh, a Marxist analysis, expecting that the infrastructure will produce, will, socially engi will engineer socially the respective, uh, the respective subject, the respective social subjects. Well, having detailed ethnographies of the social material transformations that occurred in Eastern Europe on that front when they were constructing these new spaces. These have been also recorded and recreated in artworks. For example, the celebrated film Goodbye Lenin grasps on a fictional level uh, the process of dilapidation of the enemy's material culture and its replacement by the capitalist version, which was novel to the former socialist countries. The movie's hero is desperately trying to reconstruct East Germany's material reality for his mother, who woke up after having been in coma for a long period, and she must not get shocked to find the world has changed. He tries to recreate the GDR's material culture, yet this is nearly impossible, since there is hardly any of the available material culture which was there last, the year before. Beyond fiction, the Cold War was a war. And at the end, the outcome was exactly the same like it happens in every single war. The winner occupied the territory of the defeated because this war ha had been waged between two economic political systems. This occupation of territories meant the instant transformation of the majority of immobile resources, immobile property, and real estate of socialist countries from state publicly or cooperatively owned into private ones. The enormous influx of resources into the European capitalist economy resulted in, the, in its overnight expansion. Part of the resources was also the massively impoverished population of Eastern Europe, 
who either migrated to the West or worked in their own countries, often for Western European interests or in the interests of the new local capitalist elites who replaced the nomenclature of the socialist period. With drawing on the private property of productive means as yet another source of power as well, right? They were not only, they were, in addition, the nomenclature didn't have private property. The new capitalist classes have also the private property to, to ensure their power. This fast influx of real estate and labor power fueled the European capitalist economies and especially unskilled and low-skilled labor markets all over the continent. Thus, it was only a matter of time until the construction sector evolved into the steam engine of Europe's economic growth during the 90s and 2000s, occupying an increasing percentage of the GDP all over Europe. Indeed, after 1990, Western Europe has witnessed some of the largest construction projects, both in terms of publicly funded work and in terms of private contracts. Within this context, one can notice that the world phenomenon must also be linked with the fact that the European continent in a period of two and a half decades saw three mega events, the Olympic Games of Barcelona, Athens, and London, which changed fundamentally the profile and the landscape of these three metropolises. Um, uh, and two of them, of course, are part, they are in the European periphery, right? Barcelona and Athens. It's, of course, much more important to take into consideration that this particular project of the built environment reconstruction not only created profit, but also engineered the new sociocultural capitalist subjectivities and relationships. For example, in Eastern Europe's case, these subjects had to get used to a world of private automobility, private housing market, the cosmology of the supermarket or malls, the new capitalist social hierarchies. Simultaneously, the world was being re-engineered socially as well. First of all, quantitatively, namely, thanks to the intake of the resources and the accelerated growth, but also qualitatively. This, for example, occurred via the influx of new inferior social class, the Eastern European. These were often added in the Western Europe's previous inferiors, the migrants from the Mediterranean countries or those from the former colonies. However, in some cases, the influx of Eastern European migrants add an entirely new social class and social category of migrants that didn't exist before at all. See the example of Greece here, where the word Albanian is synonymous with unskilled hard laborer. He made me an Albanian. He made me work like an Albanian. Right? That's, a, that's a typical case of a country which passed its modernization, its westernization over the body of migrant workers, right? And not only, also South Italy was a very similar example, again, with Albanians as the biggest group. Of course, during Greece's enormous economic and construction boom, mid-90s to mid-2000s, immigrants from Albania dominated the sexual workforce. Thus, Western Europe's periphery acquired its own aliens, solidifying its newly founded Westerners. So that's the first spatial, the two first interconnected spatial um, so conditions of the post-Cold War Europe, which is a real estate and increase into the a, 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 a qualitative and quantitative change in the real estate. The third condition, space condition, spatial condition, is the borders. Apart from this reconstruction of the built environment, the post-Cold War era also had another significant spatial dimension. 
Following 1990, an ongoing process of internal and external reconfiguration of the European borders ensued. Borders, gen borders created a new privileged European space and identity, which was promising or even providing the dreams of wealth and growth along those of a, of, of a supposed territorial cultural exclusivity. The sudden collapse of the main division between socialist and capitalist Europe made the previous internal Western division between core Western Europe and peripheral Western Europe much less significant. Given the common capitalist past, the two parts of Western Europe had experienced, uh, they had experienced, they shaped the, the shared commonalities in comparison to the Easterners. Dramatic events such as the wars in Yugoslavia or the brief Albanian civil war of 97 were attributed mostly to the primary scene of communism and were used to confirm the former distinction where the West had to intervene to civilize the East of Europe. Despite the various infrastructural cross-border projects between EU and non-EU European member countries, which attempted to materialize the new links, the new United Europe's identification process became problematic. The division had strong roots, as for over 50 years the archetypal enemy were the other Europeans. And as the Eltrado tragedy shows, overcoming such old divisions is a hard and long process. This EU non-EU borders became the favorite arena for testing, developing, and shaping the policies of fortress Europe. In, in the first instance, right? First, the fortress Europe we see basically in the borders between Europe and non-Europe was first shaped between East and West of Europe after the end of Cold War. In the more and more uh, uh, Eastern European countries, uh, uh, indeed, as more and more Eastern European countries enter the EU or are gaining the potential member status, the geopolitical border keeps moving as well. It is, for example, worth noting how radically within just two decades the Western government's attitude changed towards the Easterners who were crossing the old EU of the 12 member borders. When the first Eastern migrants, Eastern European migrants, started crossing the former Iron Curtain towards the West, Western governments perceived this as a political success and as a positive development, which indisputably manifested the defeat of the enemy regime. The, socialist, the socialists, however, only a little later, Eastern Europeans became an undesired floor for EU member countries, and here, uh, I can mention that it is one, a very typical case of the narrative of Albanian migrants who live in Greece. They remember the first few months of the flow, how they were welcomed until eventually, basically, police intervened after political decisions and start arrest, deportation. The borders were open. And also, in South Albania, there was very active propaganda uh, from the Greek army uh, for people basically to migrate. Those used to send balloons with messages, banners over the borders, which would invite people in Albania and in Greece, because it's Greek minority area as well, to cross the border and come to Greece. Despite the gradual inclusion of many Eastern European countries in the EU, the zones of inexpensive sex or gambling industry along the old East-West European borders is an ex explicit witness of the fact that the whole process is indeed an ongoing process. The initial example we used, the Toronto tragedy, makes plain enough that the Eastern Europeans 
first suffered from fortress Europe politics in the very recent past. Even today, Great Britain treats the Eastern European EU members as second-class Europeans in comparison with the old EU member citizens. Nevertheless, we now witness the turn of Eastern Europe to claim its right to Europeanness and Westernness over the bodies of the new others, precisely as the periphery of Western Europe did in the 90s over the bodies of Eastern European migrants. In February 2016, the Albanian PM, Prime Minister, announced that he would seal off the borders of his country against Syrian refugees, using it as a passage on their way up to Northern Europe via Greece. At the same time, several Balkan countries came to an agreement with Austria to seal off their own borders, thus closing down the Balkan corridor to refugees from Syria and other Middle East countries, Afghanistan, etc. Meanwhile, the Hungarian government, alongside other post-socialist Central European governments, is the most openly racist and anti-refugee government in the EU. The Dutch presidency of the EU silently accepted all these tactics and decisions. The Western European states thus convincingly externalize their own racist and anti-refugee politics to the Eastern European and new member states. The confirmation of its Europeanness for Eastern Europe implies better mobility within Europe, but also the violent sealing off and guarding of the common European territory. It is not accidental that the most representative event of the communist regime's collapse is the fall, of the, cross, the fall and the crossing of the Berlin Wall, or again, to bring back the example of Albania, the event which signified the end of socialism was the revolt in the embassies where people just jumped over the fences to migrate symbolically abroad. This desire has been evolved historically as a process synonymous with the reconfiguration of the common European borders into an arena of strict control of violence against non-Westerns. The violence is expressed both by border guards and police on the one hand, and by the traffickers who would arrange back in the day for Eastern Europeans the passing without documents to, for, to the EU for money. After all, Eastern European otherness may be passing mostly over the bodies of heavily exploited and underpaid employees, but the non-European otherness passes over dead bodies float, floating across the sea surface. Now let me bring together these three specialities. After the outbreak of the European financial crisis in 2008, one of the main spatial dimensions, or one of the spatial pillars of the post-Cold War Europe, the qualitative transformation of built environment and real estate, have been either deregulated or are slowing down dramatically. In the light of such dramatic events, the only main spatial condition of post-Cold War Europe that remains intact is the territorial one. Both border regime and the border securitization are becoming all the more powerful day by day. Within this context, the sudden transformation of the Balkans for Europe's proud border with Asia and Africa to a mass corridor in 2015 was perceived as a major crisis. All these cross-border infrastructures that were built in order to cement, pretty literally, the relationships between EU and non-EU member states during the post-Cold War period, including port facilities, cross-border highways, border control stations, pan- and trans-European transport corridors, suddenly became corridors for, for the refugees. This activity has gravely put into question the planned commercial and touristic purposes of this infrastructure. But most importantly, 
It's challenging the entire common European project, basically. This is what Europe it is. Huh? Europe was providing promises that of, 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 of access and an exclusivity of these promises. But now there is just the exclusivity, no more promises. Thus, the European border police has for some time now taken the right to operate in the region without the sovereign state's permission. This proof that wasn't sufficient enough, and, the EU doesn't and since EU doesn't have its own navy, in February 2016, a decision was taken for the NATO to take over the guarding of the sea borders between Greece and Turkey. NATO will officially patrol and control the borders between two NATO member countries, Greece and Turkey. Remind to all of us, in a tragic manner, where exactly Europe's borders are located, Asians in Asia and Europeans in Europe. Indeed, the notion of borders becomes more important than European membership itself, as the Greek government submits the control of the country's borders to NATO in the name of the hypothetical threat coming from one million war refugees that have crossed the European borders during 2015-2016. In early 2016, the whole humanitarian refugee tragedy that unfolded along the Syrian-Balkan corridor was of secondary importance importance compared to the question of the region's border policy. Europe's leaders have spent their time negotiating where exactly the European border lies, to which countries Europe will externalize the refugees, and how it will guard its common borders in order to decrease the flow of refugees. The life of a few million human beings seems to be a secondary question to be debated by the European leadership. On the one hand, the securitization of the common EU border is one of the last things that holds Europe together. On the other hand, this process exhibits more and more explicitly elements for what, what, Mark Maza, uh, what Mazar had called the history of our dark continent, Europe. It's not only the continent that, be, uh, that became, in the post-World War II era, the champion of human rights, refugees' rights, bourgeoisie, democracy, etc but also the continent that produced Nazism and fascism, and previously had produced colonialism. Imperialism and the genocide of various populations characterized as inferior and undesired others. Indeed, in one relatively recent example, the Holocaust, lots of people knew what exactly was going on, but they chose to turn the blind eye as civil servants were just doing their job, fulfilling the tasks assigned to them as Eichmann himself had claimed during his trial in Jerusalem. This, according to Hannah Arendt, could be described as the banality of the evil. Six million people annihilated, but everyone was minding their own job. Nevertheless, according to Scott, mobile people are often treated as enemies by sovereign apparatuses because they pose a challenge to the processes of fencing and control. Fencing and control have been principles of crucial importance for the development of capitalism. The idea of private property rights and ownability of resources, how, uh, ownability of resources. However, traditional many infrastructures and their flows, in principle, have been considered as a different kind of resources. The footpaths and the bridges in the Balkans Peninsula, the Balkan Peninsula, were a good example of this recognition of infrastructures <coughs> as being of common use, outweighed both private and state controls. Another example is water as a common resource. In some countries, water is still considered a, a, an infrastructure which must be free, right? Like Ireland, or we have the example of Thessaloniki where there is a claim to common ownership of the water at the moment. 
common good. Indeed, the roads belong to everyone in the American road fiction, and they, uh, they are out of control and open to all potentialities in most of the European fiction, according to Bakhtin. Roads and mobility can be perceived as the principles of war, violence, and occupation, according to Virilio, but equally as symbols of freedom and resistance to authoritarianism, according to Delusion, Guattari, and Scott again. The survival of the witnesses of authoritarian violence depended on the exile and on the road. This often became the worst enemies of authoritative regimes. In our days, as refugees have to escape not only from ISIS and NATO, but also from Frontex, as well as various national border guards, one can only wonder how history will judge this ongoing movement and events. Thank you very much.